Uh, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 12 today, and we're going to be uh, taking a look at, over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the next, uh, the, the next 37 verses in this, in this chapter. This is 50, 50 verses in this chapter. I just can't do them all today. I can't even get through the first 37. There's just too much in there. So what I want to do is I want to start the first half of a conversation that we'll finish up next week. Now, what I want to do is I want to take time to examine something in Scripture that most people are aware of, but they may not be aware that they're aware of it. There's a lot of things about Scripture, about studying the Bible, about the Christian life, that if we just sat and thought about it, we would go, yeah, of course. But we don't necessarily know that we know it, and sometimes we may not even be living it. We may be actually living in opposition to something that we're completely aware of, but we're just, we just don't see it. And some of that is going to be about what I think is an eye-opening truth about the character and nature of God and how he deals with us. And at the same time, an interesting thing about how our Bible is put together. We need to remember that this is the word of God. This is the single source of our truth, of our inspiration, the thing that guides us. You cannot be a Christian and deny this authority. You, you can't. God tells us we can't. <laughs> this is our single guide. But if we don't understand, if we think to ourselves, oh, that's just a book put together by a bunch of monks in the 15th century, then we prove one irrefutable fact that we have no idea about the foundation of our own faith. <laughs> we don't actually know how this thing came to be. So we need to not only understand what the Bible is, but we also need to understand a little bit about how it's put together. And today, when we're reading through this section of our Bible, it can be very easy to let the way that it's put together influence our thinking. It's very, very easy to do that. For instance, when we look at the section headings in our Bibles, most of our Bibles, when paragraphs break, when chapters break and different sections within the chapters, you'll see headings above the paragraphs. You know that those weren't put there by the authors, right? Those are put there by editors. And a lot of those editors are not Christians. They just put them there as a way of kind of helping us reference what we're looking at. Give you a basic idea about what's coming below. But what ends up happening a lot of the times is that we start reading our Bible and we think that like suddenly there's a break in the chain of thought. Like Jesus was talking about this and then it changed. Now he's talking about this and then it changed. And then if the chapter moves, boy, does that mess us up because now everything has changed. Like we're in a completely different chapter. But is it the same conversation? Because remember, the numbers, the headings, they're just there so that we know where we are. That, that's the only reason they exist. And we have to mentally get ourselves prepared to ignore them when we're reading. So for instance, when you look at this section of Scripture, we're going to be looking at the first 37 verses in Matthew chapter 12. When you look at that, in most people's Bibles, in my New King James, it breaks it up into six different sections. And those six sections, if you look at your Bible, see if you have these titles or something close to it. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, behold my servant. I'm not actually sure what that was supposed to mean, but hey, you know, it's all good. It says, a house divided cannot stand, the unpardonable sin and a tree known by its fruit. It's very easy to look at that section of scripture and think that these are all disconnected topics. Because there's a different heading well, maybe the first two are connected, but I mean, obviously the rest of them aren't connected. What I want to show you over the next couple of weeks is all of this is really one conversation broken up into two basic points. 
but it's all one conversation. Jesus is starting this conversation because of the way that the, the Pharisees have attacked him, and he uses their own arrogance to bring, over, bring about an incredibly powerful truth, but it's all the way at the end. And a lot of times, we, we disconnect these simply because of the way the Bible's put together. So what I want to do this morning is I want to read all 37 verses in one shot. I know that's way more scripture than I normally would just read, but honestly, I mean, think about it, it's the summertime. I'm really just helping you guys catch up on your devotional time, <laughs> right? Well, let's be honest with ourselves, right? So I think, I think you're, good. So you're good for this week. Everything is good. You just start Monday fresh. Everything's going to be fine. So starting in verse 1, Let's take a look at this. Now, I want to read this as though it's one conversation. What I want you to try to do as I'm going through is try to see how this whole thing is connected. Okay? Most people wear glasses so they can read. I have to take mine off to read because apparently that's what age does. It's not funny, but it is. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and, uh, and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law on the, that, that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yes, I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They said this, that they may accuse him. And then he said to them, What man is there among you has one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will de uh, declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed will not break, and a smoking flax will not be quenched till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. Then one who was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he came and he healed them. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. All the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, meaning the devil, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided itself 
is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, neither in this age or the age to come. Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? From out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures bring forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So let me ask you a question. Does that sound like six different conversations? Or did that sound like one big conversation broken up into two pretty easily distinguishable parts? When I look at it, I see two basic points here. The first one is what we're going to look at today. The law is our guide, but love is the goal. The law is our guide, but love is the goal. If your law does not bring you to love as your conclusion, then the law is wrong. Or your application of it is wrong. And secondly, pride will keep you from seeing the truth of God. So let's jump into point number one. So the first thing we see in the beginning, they, they, they tell Jesus that what his, what his uh, disciples are doing is wrong. It is wrong for them to pluck and eat on the Sabbath. Did Jesus say, no, it's not? Uh-uh, I'm God, I can do whatever I want. Did Jesus say in any way that they were incorrect in saying what the disciples were doing was wrong. No. He actually agreed with them. You're right. However, you want to belittle my disciples, but do you remember David, you know, the king? Everyone loved this guy. He comes into the temple and eats a showbread, which was supposed to be a sentence of death. And they ate it. You guys don't say a thing. Oh, by the way, do you remember the priests? See, on the Sabbath, the priests would go in and they would swap the showbread out. It would be, it would have been there for a week. So the new showbread would go out, but they're working on the Sabbath. Uh, so do you, do you realize that you religious leaders dishonor the Sabbath every single week? Yet you say nothing. I had a gentleman come up to me one day. We were going to do a, uh, uh, we were doing something after church, cleaning up the cemetery. And he said to me, it is wrong for you to let the church do this on a Sunday. I said, uh, why? It's because no one's supposed to work on a Sunday. I said, that's interesting. What am I doing? That's different. Why is that different? 
well, we got to follow the Bible and what it says. Really, the Bible says that you, you should not cook on a Sunday. Your wife making you dinner today? You see, it's rules for thee, not for me. I want to hold you accountable for everything that I allow myself to get away with. Because it makes me feel good about myself. Jesus was not discounting what the Pharisees were saying. What he was trying to help them understand was that they had the application wrong. They may have wanted to value the Sabbath, but the truth is they didn't actually understand the Sabbath. They turned it into something that God did not want it to be. Now check this out. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. He blessed and sanctified. Do you notice it didn't say Sunday or Saturday? It just said the seventh day. It doesn't matter where you start. There's some people say, if you, go, you, have to, you, you cannot do anything on a Sunday. Why Sunday? Do you have some sort of magical mathematical formula that has allowed you to tabulate the number of Sundays all the way back to the beginning of time? Because the truth is, we don't know what the seventh day was. And it's not part of our Gregorian calendar. It would be part of the Hebrew calendar. And by the way, the Hebrew calendar, most people don't know this, they literally lost like 300 years of history. They don't even know what day it is. Now granted, after a decent nap, sometimes I don't know what day it is. And you wake up after a nap in the middle of the day and even your dog's looking at you like, do you know where we are? (laughs) I don't know what happened. I love those naps. Those are my favorite ones. It's not the day of the week that was blessed. It was, now listen carefully. It was the act of resting after six days of labor. After six days of work, what was blessed and sanctified was the rest, not the day. You think about this. Before the fall of man, there were two things that God gave us that carried through past our expulsion from the garden. Only two pieces of our pre-fallen life, mean the fall, mean when we were, when, when Adam and Eve were living in the presence of God. There are only two things about that life that has followed us to where we are right now. Marriage and the Sabbath. People today think, oh, the Sabbath is part of the law. Are you kidding me? It was so far before the law. Why would we attach it to the law? Literally like day seven, God gave us the Sabbath. It has nothing to do with the law. It is eternal. And God expects us to submit to it. It is a day of rest. If God, who doesn't have to take a nap, chose to rest, who are we to tell him, you don't understand my schedule? He does understand your schedule, and he thinks you should work on it. Okay? Now, that being said, 
the rules that the religious leaders placed on the Sabbath went to insanity. Some, some of the rules of the Sabbath were so weird. So what, what God said is you will, you will refrain from work. There are, there are two things basically in Scripture that we're told not to do. To refra- we're told to refrain from work and don't light a fire, which means you should probably eat the leftovers from yesterday. If you're lighting a fire, especially in that time, it wasn't for illumination. It was because you're about to cook something, which meant as a husband, you were forcing your wife to work while you didn't have to work. So you were asking her to violate the Sabbath. Now, that's pretty easy to understand. So what the religious leaders did from like that point on was they tried to define work in lots and lots and lots of different ways. I have a little article here um, uh, from, a, uh, from a Hebrew website, 39 categories of Sabbath work. Now, listen to this, carrying. So you're at the beach enjoying your day off and you're walking through the sand, mom, and your little kid's burning his feet and he goes, ah, and you're like, sorry, buddy. <laughs> No carrying today, you're going to burst into flames, little devil child, or we're good. Nope, can't do that, because no burning either. <laughs> no burning, no extinguishing. Okay, now hang on a second. Hey, everybody, my house is on fire, but it's Sunday! Sorry. Now, if your house is on fire on Tuesday, I'm with you. But it's a Sunday, let her burn. No finishing. (laughs) Procrastinators love this one. No writing. No erasing. (laughs) I mean, you know how hard that is. No cooking, no washing, no sewing, no tearing, no knotting, no untying. So So if you tied your kid's shoes too tight on Saturday, can't loosen them on Sunday when their toes are all purple. No shaping, no plowing, no planting, no reaping. No harvesting, no threshing, no winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combining, spinning, dyeing, chain chain stitching, chain stitching. That's oddly specific. (laughs) So ladies, those of you who do like, you know, weird cross-stitch stuff, like is there a different stitch that you could use on that day that you're like, you know what, I can't chain stitch. However... Warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning. Does that mean you can't go to the beach or does that have something to do with animal hide? Who knows? I am always at peace with this particular one because I don't tan. I pinken. No smoothing and no marking. Now, in the Old Testament, these things were punishable by death. Wait, wait, what? Yeah. But it gets sort of weirder at this uh, today because these were, a lot of these were made for old times when we didn't have the technology that we have today. And religious leaders in the Hebrew community still add things to these categories. This is an article about rabbinical rulings about elevators. Now, here's the funny thing for you. You, get in, you go to Israel, you get on an elevator. There are Sabbath elevators that just go to every floor all day long so that you don't have to go through the arduous, painstaking, exhausting task of going, boop. 
Now, here's the thing that you're not paying attention to. The reason why you can't push the button is because when you push the button, a light comes on, and when the light comes on, you've created a spark. Therefore, you're igniting. I'm not kidding, and it gets way funnier here in just a second. So Jews in, in, uh, in New York City are the ones kind of having this battle because some of them live like on the 10th, 20th floor of a high, of a high rise. And rabbis are going, you shouldn't because you're causing the engine of the elevator to work. I don't think the engine of the elevator has a soul. I mean, call me crazy. They say, you should take the stairs. And I'm thinking, yeah, because that's way more restful than an elevator ride. (laughs) Sounds great. But here is my favorite one. You want to talk about illogical, theological overreach, way into legalism, There was a decision that was reached in a debate. This was an ongoing debate in the Jewish community. And around 1999, 2000, this is, Samantha's already got her, it's like, oh, he's going to say it, isn't it? Yes, I am. And so there's this debate going on in the Jewish community, whether or not something could happen on the Sabbath. And finally, they came to a decision. They were like, yes, okay, this can happen on the Sabbath. We probably were looking into this a little too hard. So when you want to talk about legalistic overreach, here you go. It is now okay, I'm not making this up, here's the article, you can read it, to pick your nose on the Sabbath. Some of you kids are like, yes! Here was their reasoning. You're not allowed to cut your hair on the Sabbath. Do the math. That was the worry. You may accidentally pluck something out you're not supposed to pluck out. That, and that's where the, 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 the Hebrew scholars are like, we might be looking a little too far into this. I don't think this is really what God meant about this. So go ahead. I mean, it's not a rule I would pick, but it's fine. Some of you will get that little subtle joke on the way home. There are only two things that Scripture specifically states that you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. Work and light a fire. Where'd the rest of them come from? They're imposed. They're imposed. Now, did Jesus say, you're right, they probably shouldn't have been doing that. Yes, he did. He agreed that what the disciples were doing was technically not lawful. And then he reminds him that David violated the Sabbath. No one cared. The temple priests violate the Sabbath. No one cares. And they... Remember when he says, how many of you, if your animal gets stuck in a hole, you would go and, and, and get it out. You wouldn't even think about it. You would just go and do it. So you have rules for everybody else, and then you have rules for yourself. Jesus is not denying the restrictions. He's simply pointing out that they have a heartless, loveless application of those restrictions. And that was never God's intent for the Sabbath. It was about rest, not rules. That's why Jesus says Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's here for our benefit, not to be used as a theological club to beat people into submission. So Jesus reminds them of their own sin in that area, according to them. But look what he does in verse 9. This gets better. Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues. Verse 9 through 13, look what he does. It says, Now when he had departed there, he went to their synagogue. And behold, there was a man 
who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they may, they may accuse him? Then he said to them, What man here among you has one sheep, and if it does not fall into the, uh, into the pit on the Sabbath, will he not lay a hold of it and take it out? How much more value then is a man than a sheep? I can almost hear Jesus say, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You mean like this? And then he heals him. Now, here's the thing about this. These guys... Well, actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. Why did Jesus go to their synagogue? Why did Jesus go to their synagogue? Why is that little detail put in there? Why not just the synagogue? It was their synagogue. I think Jesus went there because he knew that those who followed these guys and listened to these guys were going to be there. And he was about to make a, a very important point about our faith. We're told in 1 Peter 3 that we are to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in this, but to do this with gentleness and respect. And another translation to this is with fear and reverence. And a lot of times when we look at that scripture, that gentleness and respect, that fear and reverence, we put that towards the other person. With gentleness and respect to that other person. But when you actually read the passage, it has nothing to do with the person you're speaking to. It has everything to do with the hope that you are speaking. The gentleness and respect, the fear and reverence that we have is for the word of God that we are explaining to that person. Because you cannot explain the hope that is in you without the word of God. So you hold that word of God out with fear and gentleness, with reverence and respect. I will not dishonor this word. But we think we're supposed to minister to one another in like this overwhelming kindness. And there's a place for that. But there is also a place where you have to stand for the truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the only thing that that needs to happen for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. You've made a decision. The decision is to not be involved. Sometimes, when you are dealing with a person so full of themselves that they are simply unable to listen to anyone but them. There's plenty of people like this in your life. Some of them may have been part of the church. At some point in time, you stop trying to reach them because you know they are unreachable. They have moved past the ability to hear anything other than their own voice. What you do in those situations, you don't just back off and go, I don't want to cause any trouble. No, you step into the middle of this situation. A lot of times you see this on social media where sometimes you have no choice but to get in the middle of this and you lay the truth out, not for the benefit of the person that's bringing the lies. You do it so that the people who might be listening have a chance to hear the truth. So you step into that place and you risk offending that person. Because I promise you one thing, not submitting to Jesus is much more of an offense than bringing the truth of Jesus to somebody. I will offend those people all the time, and I've actually gotten pretty good at it. 
There's a lot of times Samantha will be watching me on my phone and she'll look at me and she already knows what's going on. She doesn't, doesn't need to know. She'll look at me and she'll go, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. And then I just start typing faster. You know, it's, like, it's like the parent walking over to the kid with the cookie. He just starts eating it faster. <laughs> Meanwhile, in my mind, I'm going, I'm an adult. <laughs> no, I'm trying to put some reason in the middle of chaos. To protect other people from bad theology. Because bad theology leads you away from the person of Christ. And it is the responsibility of those who know you being righteous. Put yourself in the middle of that. Try to bring that person back. This is basically what Jesus is doing right here. He puts himself in the middle of their synagogue and lets all the people who are there know These guys have it wrong. And here's the thing. When they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then the guy gets healed and then they get mad about it. Think of what has to happen. If you are praying, dear God, bring a healing to this person. And then God brings the healing. How can you get mad and tell that person that they're dishonoring God? I can imagine God looking down and going, I, but, but I just, why, why are you, what? I did this. Obviously it's okay. I did it. But it conflicted with their version of theology. They had an idea of what God was and God proved to them that they were wrong and they got mad at God. Good job. That's the type of religious leader you don't want to be around. There's a man there with the withered hand. Instead of showing them, instead of them showing him compassion, they used him as a toy to try to put Jesus on trial. And he knew exactly what to do. Jesus used their own arrogance to display the love and the power of God. And their reaction was they plotted against him how they may destroy him. By destroy, they mean kill. God's power is on full display in front of them. And their only thought is, we need to get this guy out of this. We need to do something about this. He's making it hard for us to keep our authority here. We need to find some way to end this guy's life. Because apparently God is too powerful in his life For us. So Jesus decides to make a strategic withdrawal. And the cool thing is, now this is all still happening on Sunday, folks. Or on the Sabbath, which would have been a Saturday back then. See, I don't know what day it is either. Jesus withdraws, a multitude of people follow him, and he heals all of them. So remember that question, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And like, not just once. Let's heal everybody. Sometimes I wish I knew how to, how to get God to do that, but it's his choice. Jesus was proving a point. 
And as far as we know, all this is still happening, happening on the Sabbath. And if you thought the Pharisees hated Jesus for him for healing one person, think of how much they hated him for healing everybody. Everyone who used to be sick and were part of their church, they left to go follow Jesus and found the healing they couldn't get at home. Something to be said for that. But now let me ask you something. The very beginning, they say your disciples are doing something that's not lawful, which means Jesus was doing it as well. They were all eating the grain. He doesn't deny that it wasn't lawful. He doesn't deny that healing on the Sabbath, technically, if you really went to the letter of the law, would have been working. He doesn't deny any of this stuff. So there's a question that gets asked periodically that I think you've got to deal with. Did Jesus sin? He broke the Sabbath. Did he sin? Now, obviously, we know that the answer is no, but just knowing, just, just being able to say no is not very helpful in a conversation when somebody else asks that question. We need to know why Jesus didn't sin. We've got to have more answers. Now, listen to this passage from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of God in you. It is the evidence of a changed life. It is proof to those around you that you are not the same person that you were before, that the Spirit of God has been made alive in you. And the fruit of that, what people can see in your life, are these things. It's the fruit of a living spirit inside of you. Kindness toward one another is not a sin. Jesus even says to them, doing good on the Sabbath is not unlawful. Demonstrating the love of God to those in need is never a sin, no matter the day of the week. It is never a sin to demonstrate the love of God, no matter who that person is. It doesn't make any difference. Here's something that a lot of Christians today need to understand. Being kind to the LGBT community is not a sin. Being kind to people who are hungry, regardless of the decisions that took them there, is not a sin. Bringing someone who doesn't want anything to do with God into the church that they may hear a message is not a sin. Going over to someone's house on a Sunday and making them a meal because they don't have the ability to do it for themselves, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their situation, is not a sin. What Jesus tells us is being aware of suffering that we can do something about and then deciding those people can sit in that suffering because they probably deserve it. That's the issue. It's not violating the Sabbath. It's violating the law of God and love. Law is good, but if law does not bring you to grace, does not bring you to love, then you have no real understanding of the law. Does that mean the people that you help are somehow good with God? If you, if, you take a, uh, 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 if you take a meal over to, I'll actually make it really 
kind of kind of in there. You know of a lesbian couple in your in your area? They're completely broke. They have no food. Their kids are hungry, and you take a meal to them. Have you somehow endorsed them? No. You've done something amazing. You've let them know that God sees your suffering and he still wants you. I hope this helps. Have you become a compromiser? No. You've done exactly what the heart of the law is supposed to do. You've bridged a gap that maybe they will hear something from you where they would not hear before. These are things we've got to learn, especially with the craziness, the the direction that our world is going in. We've got to find a way of existing in this nutcase world that we live in and still being a light to the lost. There is a significant difference between working and loving. I like to look at it this way. For six days, we should pour ourselves out and, and, and the, 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 the world just takes from us. Whatever job you have, whatever effort you have, there's about six days. We're just emptying ourselves into this world. There's got to be a day where you do something that brings life back to you. And it doesn't matter what it is. What just makes you alive? Man, this was great. I'm ready the week. That's rest. Some people think, you know what's what's restful? A vacation. Ha! (laughs) You obviously go on vacations alone. I've never met a family who comes back from a vacation and the parents are like, oh man, charged up. They usually can't wait to get home so they can go back to work. Here's something restful for you, parents. Summer break. <laughs> we all know that that's not. We get we get this wrong idea. And then you got churches that say if you do any, you know, if you don't rest on the Sabbath, you go on the wrong day on the Sabbath. All of a sudden, you're sinning against God. They don't understand what the purpose of the Sabbath was. The purpose of the Sabbath is to breathe life into you, so that you're prepared for the next six days to come. You think about this. I mean, you, you talk about batteries. I mean, we're way better than any Tesla. We can drive for six days. All we need is one day off. We're good for another six days. Jesus' issue with the Pharisees was not about the day of the week. It was about the application that they had for rules over love, for law over love. They cared more about the enforcement of the rules than the value of the people that they were pressing them into. Now, this section concludes with something from Isaiah, and this is actually um, sort of the bridge between the first, the, the first part and the second part. I want to read this to you, but not out of Matthew. I want to read it to you actually from Isaiah, and I want to I put a few, a few more details in it. Um, a lot of the times in Scripture, what you're going to find is they'll quote something from the Old Testament, but they'll only quote a small piece. But that doesn't mean that the, that the guy quoting it was only talking about that small piece. He may have been talking about the entire section. And so we need to go back and actually read the entire section. Now check this out. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. It reads like this. 
It says, behold, my servant, when I uphold, whom I uphold, my elect, one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. And the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God, uh, says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth from the earth that which comes from it, who gives, uh, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and I will hold, uh, I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the, uh, from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is, uh, that is my name and my glory. I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Listen to this, this last verse. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, it's very easy to see that what the Spirit spoke over Jesus at his baptism in that. This is my son whom I am well pleased. In him, my spirit will rest. It's very easy to see that. But this last line, think about the conversation that he was just having with the Pharisees about their unbelief, about their denial of the power of God, about their denial of who Jesus is, giving credit to what Jesus was doing to the devil. He says, behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He's letting the Pharisees know, you claim to know me, but you don't recognize me when I do exactly what I should be doing. When I should be doing it, I am fulfilling everything you've been waiting for. And you're so blind, you can't even see it. Jesus is saying, you pretend to know me, but you don't know anything about me. You pretend to know me. Wear the cross on your neck. Give 40 bucks a month, K-Love. Right? Put a few dollars in the plate. Go to a helping hands every now and then. Go to a Bible study. Come in late for church because you don't want to be involved in that worship thing. You pretend to know me, but you don't know anything about me. That's the message that Jesus is sending to those who claim to know him, but don't. And next week, we see a very significant truth in this that Jesus is leading up to from the first part. But you got to come back next week to hear it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak your truth the opportunity to speak your word. Father, you bless us with the truth that you have preserved through centuries in your word. Father, help us never to doubt its value. Help us to never doubt the spirit behind it, the truth that it brings, and the power that it places in our lives if we would just submit ourselves to it. And help us to defend it without hesitation, without worry. 
without apology.